If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the back. Please just go up and get one right now. We're in Matthew 7 together. Uh, we're in a series this summer. Actually, today is the last sermon in the series. It's a seven-part series we did in the summer. We do expository preaching through books of the Bible. We're going to start September 18th, back in the Gospel according to John, and we're going to work through that until we finish. Could be a couple of months. I don't know, maybe the whole year. I don't know. We'll see. But we'll be in the Gospel according to John. So we're in a summer series called, Did God Really Say That? There's seven of them. If you haven't heard them, go online. We got them there posted for you, audio, video, whatever you want. And the things that we looked at is some of the cliches that people say, and we wonder, did God really say that? Like, he won't give you more than you can handle. He gives us a lot more than we can handle, but he doesn't give us more than he can handle, right? Number two, God helps those who help themselves, not in the old pat myself on the back, look how great I am. That's not true. Did God really say he wants me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy? Well, not according to uh, the scripture, but definitely according to the false prosperity gospel. We talked about that. Number four, did God really say we are just all God's children? Remember the video from Bill Blake. That will be burned forever in my mind. (laughs) Cracked me up. Uh, Well, in a creative sense, no. Yes, I mean, but, but in a relational sense, no. We've sinned, we've rebelled, yet God adopts us into his family through the Lord Jesus Christ. Number five was the bad things happen to good people. Well, bad things happen to when we don't, may not deserve a cause, but there is really no one good. No, not one. So the question really is, why does good things happen to people like us, hard-headed people? Number six, when, <laughs> when someone dies, I love this one. Did God really say, God, he gained another angel? I don't know where that came from, but no, angels are different than humans. We are created in the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. Very different. So all those uh, six are online. Then the seventh one, which we'll finish today, get ready for the video. Did God really say that? Good evening. I'm Rhonda Rivera here with the K44 News Special Report. We're here live tonight at Washington, D.C., with the late Tad McPherson's biggest fan, Stan Collins, who's recently started what he's calling a new religion. Good evening, Stan. Good evening, Rhonda. So, tell us a little bit about this new religion that you started and why you started it. Well, this religion is uh, a book based on Tad and basically anything he did, movie-wise, manuscript-wise, and any of his thoughts or things like that. The reason I started it was because Tad always said we're called to be happy, and I thought this would make me very happy, so I created the Book of Tad. Interesting. Now, you're calling it a religion, and for the purposes of this report, we are too. However, many people out there are calling it a cult. What do you have to say to them? Um, I wouldn't say it was a cult, or call it a cult. Uh, It's just a group of people that share a common interest in living on living out Tad's legacy. I see. Well, despite all this and the many opinions that are out there, do you find it a tad, (laughs) no pun intended, bit silly that you started a whole religion based on one man who is nothing more than an actor? Don't judge me. (laughs) Matthew chapter 7. Verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Feeling a little squirmish there, huh? May God add a blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word. All right, so this is what we're going to do. I need to refresh this. Whoop. Let me just refresh this really quick here. Um, where are you? There it is. Okay. So here's our outline, if you're following with me. It's, no, that's not it. Let me go back one. Okay. Um, Lot, you know, whole, whole mouthful, but this is where we're going, okay? First, the command of Christ announced at verse, chapter 7, verse 1, what he is telling us what we ought not to do. And then the consequences of our actions exposed. If you keep going in this direction, this is what's going to happen. Then we'll get to the commentary. Actually, Jesus explains what he means on it. And then finally, we'll look at the calculation of our action clarified because there is a place where we ought to withhold the pearls, that which is sacred. Okay? That's where we're going. First, the command of Christ. Now, before we look at the first seven words of Christ's command, let me, let me just put, I need to put Matthew's chapter 7 in context. We've got to have it in context. It's the longest point. I'll let you know now. But to get this in the right context as we jump into the verse is extremely important to understand what Jesus is saying. Okay? So, we know that this verse is probably one of the most misquoted, misused verse there is in Scripture, I think. Starting cult religions, don't judge me. You just saw that, right? Jesus is preaching in Matthew 7 on what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you have heard that. It begins really in chapter 5, verse 1. And Jesus, it says, sees the crowd. Jesus went up to the mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him. So the Sermon on the Mount goes from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through to the end of chapter 7. Again, one of the most famous passages, but one of the most abused one or misused one I think there is. Now, it's important to understand that when Jesus is teaching this Sermon on the Mount, it's important to understand the basic principle underlying Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount deals with a need for a new life, not a legalistic system of morality to follow. Too often, people with poor exegesis that's drawing out of the text and bad theology approach the, approach the Ten Commandments, excuse me, approach the Sermon on the Mount like they would the Ten Commandments. You have to obey this and do this, and then you're accepted by God. That's a religious way of doing it. I obey, and therefore I'm accepted in love. That's the kind of way. But Jesus is teaching now that you are part of the kingdom or coming into the kingdom, this is your guideline for life. In my kingdom. We know that because we just turned the page to chapter 4. We have a summary statement of Jesus' earthly ministry. He said, Jesus came on the scene proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's what Matthew's about. And then he healed, went around teaching the way of the kingdom, forgiving sins, demonstrating the purpose and the power of the kingdom by his healing. He was showing that the king has come. So when you and I hear the word kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, the first thing we ought to think immediately is king jesus 
is primarily the reigning ruling of a king. It's secondary is the realm and the people in which he overrules. That's why he's king Jesus, because he has a kingdom. Now, Jesus came on the scene and began to preach the kingdom and showing the present reality that the kingdom of God had come. He exercised his authority. He healed. He, he cast out demons. And also, not only his reign in that day, but he's showing that someday in the final consummation of the ages, everything broken will be fixed. So it's this already, I'm here, I'm inaugurating the kingdom, and look what the kingdom will look like in the future because there'll be no sin, no brokenness, no cancer, no disease, no demon possession. All that stuff will be done away when King Jesus comes and reigns on the earth, the new heavens, the new earth without sin, and we will experience the people of God, the shalom of God, the peace of God. It's vital to understand this as you look at the Sermon on the Mount. So what Jesus is doing here is unveiling the character of his kingdom. In part now, as his people are working that out, and the future reality when he will finalize and his perfect kingdom will come. Preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it very succinctly, and he says, Matthew 7, 5 through 7, this is the picture of the life of the kingdom of God. It's very simple. So you have Jesus going to the mountain, just like Moses, and yet he lays down uh, the proper understanding of the law, but understand that we're a new community. The kingdom of God has come. We belong to Jesus. And we know that also not only from the context, but look at verse 20 of chapter 5, if you have a Bible, in the beginning of the Beatitudes. Right before, right after the Beatitudes, I mean, excuse me, Sermon on the Mount, right before he, he gets into the text, right after the Beatitudes, right in between that, Jesus says something very interesting, chapter 5, verse 20. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, the word righteousness has two meanings. It could mean just doing the right thing. But there is a a, a way and look in which the Scripture speaks about, there is a righteousness that has to do with a standing, a status, a relationship, and has to do with with, with your, your rights, in which what you do grants you. So what you do grants you this right, this status before others. Uh, let me give you an illustration. Some of you have been to grad school. And what you do is you write to the school that you want to go to and, and you show them your work. You show them what you've done. You show them all your, uh, your grades and you're putting down your performance before them because you want to get accepted to the school. And you're waiting, and as they go through your records, they go through what you have performed and all the deeds that you've done, and they're waiting. And you get the letter, and it says, listen, what you've done has now gotten you into this relationship with the, with the school. You could come in. What, what you've done now opens the door, and you now have the right relationship with the school, and you can come to that school. So there's a performance, work base, and then there's a standing and status and relationship base. See the two? Jesus is not using performance-based righteousness here in his text. That you must perform and work harder and greater and be more righteous than the work of the religious Pharisees. Right? He's not telling a bunch of people that follow him up, a fisherman and all these people, that they must do more than what the righteousness of the Pharisees are doing. 
They followed 613 do's and don'ts. They had another 1,521 do's and don'ts that you don't do the do's and don'ts. I'm not making this up. 613 do's and don'ts. And then 1,500 to make sure you don't do those. They're called, I have written down somewhere. Let me see what they're called. They're called emendations, emendations. Okay? Jesus is not saying, listen, 1,500, listen, you do 2,700 do's and don'ts, and your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. That's not what Jesus is saying, obviously. The religious leaders of his day, and we need to see this, because no one lives up to the Sermon on the Mount. If you read the Sermon on the Mount and you go, I do all that, ask the person next to you, they'll tell you you're not, okay? It's a righteousness that you cannot establish on your own. I'm going to tell you that right now. Okay? No one lives up to the Sermon on the Mount because no one has a perfect record. The religious leaders in that day based their righteousness, their standing with God because of the work in which they performed. All the laws, all the do's and don'ts, all the things that they had conjured up to get in a right position, right standing, right status with God. And they became judgmental. They became critical. Uh, they, they became self-righteous. And that's what happens every time that you and I or anyone else has a work-based performance right standing with God. We become self-righteous because no one's living up to your standard. That's what Jesus is talking about. Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable. And, and it's funny because Luke gives us a little insight to the parable. He says, Jesus told this parable to the Pharisees because they, it says, They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated other people with contempt. And then Jesus goes into this temple, uh, into this parable and says, there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. They both went to the temple. Remember that story? Tax collector's banging his chest. I'm I'm unworthy. I'm unrighteous. And the the Pharisee's like, oh, I'm glad I'm not like him. And that one, and that one, and that one. I just tie, they do all these things. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what. One went away justified right with God one didn't and it was not the Pharisee it was the tax collector who's broken and humble that's what we're up against that's what Jesus is talking about the critical harsh and severe Pharisees who are quick to judge others their motives were not to build people up their motives was to tear people down they were unfair they did not love the people they were quick to condemn. So as we look at Matthew 7, we need to keep that in perspective. It's a stark contrast to the view of the scribes and the Pharisees who believe that their moral goodness and performance allowed them to be in a righteous, right way with God. It was external. It was artificial. It was dead. Not a living relationship. They became proud, not humble. It led to bondage, not liberty. They acted, we know, through rituals. And Jesus said, you know what? It's not about that. First and foremost, it's about your heart, okay? So we get to Matthew 7. I know it's a long introduction, but you need to see that because this passage is teaching us something about our estimation of other people in opposition, in contrast to that of the Pharisees, particularly when we see faults in others. So the way we think, the way we think and what we say about others reveals to us, it reveals a lot, if you are honest, about how we experience and how we view the grace and mercy of God in our own life. Ouch. If we're quick to condemn, if we're quick to perhaps criticize, 
Maybe we're not resting in the freedom and the grace and the mercy and the kindness that God has toward us. So it's a contrast. Judge not that you will not be judged. So let's, let's, let's look and let's see what Jesus is not saying. Can we do that first? Let's talk what Jesus is not saying. We know from other passages of Scripture. Number one, Jesus is not declaring that we should not have any law courts. Actually, it was a guy by the name of, so you know him, Leo Tolstoy, said, undoubtedly, Jesus here condemns all human intervention of courts of justice. Jesus speaking against the courts, there should be no one right or wrong, there should be no legal system. That's not what Jesus is saying. Who's he talking to? The magistrates or his disciples? His disciples. So he's not declaring, not walking into the courts of Israel and saying this. He's talking to his disciples about the new kingdom. And about being under King Jesus. So we're not talking about that. It doesn't mean that we should not judge and discern between right and wrong. Doctrine that's true and doctrine that is false. Actually, the Bible talks about we ought to test the spirit. Jesus will go on in verse 15 of chapter 7. This is what he says. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Well, what do you have to do to beware? Discern, judge. It was important for me to speak about someone who stood up and did not say the things of God. Uh, we're, not, we're not judging in that critical way he's talking about, but we are to discern what's right or wrong. In fact, the Bereans, if you read the scriptures, were noble people. Why? Because they studied the scripture to see whether what was being preached by Paul was of God. Jesus is not saying don't discern truth from error. I realize when I say that, a lot of people separate and, and cause division over non-essential, silly things. We don't like the color of that carpet. We're not going there. You know what I mean? That kind of silly stuff. Oh, we don't like the pastor because he wears jeans. Well, I, as I told you before, I don't wear a robe because I'm not a Jedi Knight. But if I was, I would wear a robe. <laughs> Sound doctrine will divide. Orthodox truth of Scripture does not mean, or he's not saying that we are to not discern that. Listen to what Paul told Rome, church at Rome. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul tells young Timothy, his protege, handle rightly the word of God. In Galatians 1, it says, if anyone preaches the gospel contrary let him be accursed. We have to discern. That's not what Jesus is saying. Number three, judge not does not mean that we should not exercise church discipline. Jesus will go on in Matthew 18. You see a brother. You confront him about his sin. He doesn't want to hear it. You take two or three with you. You still don't want to hear it. You take it to the church. At that point, it's obstinate. It, it, it's clear. Jesus says, treat him as a tax collector and a pagan. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells the church, there's a sexually immoral brother among you who won't listen. What am I to do, he says? I don't judge outsiders. It is those in the church whom you are to judge. Remove that brother from the fellowship. That's not my words. That's the word of God. What does it take to do that? You have to judge. There's discernment. doesn't mean we don't, we don't discern rightly the things that God has called us to do, whether it's 
Um, uh, within the church, whether it's doctrine or not, we still ought to discern. So what is Jesus saying? The word judge here is the word Greek word krino, and it's translated many different ways in Scripture. It could be simply translated to analyze or to evaluate, but it's also the word that's used for condemnation. Critical, overly harsh judgment. From the text, we know that that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Self-righteousness will lead to excessive fault-finding and a hypercritical attitude that displays itself in a derogatory, condemning manner. Now, if it's getting hot in here, I had to read this all week. And I find myself putting myself in check. So we're going to preach this sermon every Sunday for three years. (laughs) Rough, rough. Like, there's always people that are like on permanent jury duty. You know, that's that's their life. The Pharisees weren't discerning people in their sin to build them up. They were looking at, well, the way they were dressed maybe, maybe the way they do things, maybe not exactly the way they do it. Remember this, family. If if you remember anything, kind of just put this in the back of your head. There is a giant difference between personal preference and scriptural principles. Way too often, myself included, We get caught up into something we think is right or wrong, and when you're pressed, you're thinking, no, it's not really in the Bible. It's it's okay to have personal preferences. It's okay. But don't look down on others that are different than you. That's what Jesus is talking about. Some people like the band. Some people want an organ. That's the way we do it here. But it doesn't mean it's wrong. And that's when people get very, very, very critical. They confuse things and they get become critical. And the principle that Jesus is teaching is really clear. He was forbidding a, a pharisaical self-righteousness, rush to judgment, unmerciful, and prejudiced criticism. And notice what else Jesus said. This is, this is, this is good. I hopefully, take it with, with God's love. Judge not, so, what does it say? That you be not judged. Here's the question. Who's he talking about? Judge not, lest you not be judged. Judge by others? So if you judge someone else, somebody else is judging you in the same judgment? Well, that might be it, but I know one thing it is. He's talking about God. He's talking about God himself. Because when we judge in a critical, unjust, self-righteous judgment, we're playing God. We're not not the judge, we're the judged. (laughs) Jesus is commanding his disciple to resist the temptation to put themselves in the place of God. Judge not that you be judged. You and I are not the final court. To judge others, their motives in such a way that you're omniscient, you know everything, is playing God. John Stott said, Jesus does not tell us here to cease to be men by suspending our critical powers, which help distinguish us from the animals, and we know right and wrong, but he tells us here to renounce our presumptuous Ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judge and lawmaker, end quote. Which brings me to my second point. Judge not, yes, you be judged. Okay, look what Jesus says next. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use use it will be measured to you. Okay, so once you see that you're being critical, hypocritical, and self-righteous judgment, you're playing God. Verse 1, and look what it says in verse 2. Jesus is saying, look, I'll watch how you judge. Right? I'll I'll watch how you judge. 
For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, if the measurement and the judgment is God, ultimately, that really should scare you. But we're judging and we're saying, oh, Lord, just as I judge my brother. Yep, my my brother, my sister, I'm overly critical. Do the same thing for me, please. Who says that? Same thing with Jesus' words, and I'll never forget when I first read it a long time ago, but the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us of our debts, our sins, our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, sin against us. That as we is really important. Lord, forgive me only in my unforgiving want to bust to run that person over in that same way. That's how I want you to forgive me. Just like I do. That's what he's saying. Lord, I, I know I'm judging, and, and yes, please, <laughs> judge me in the same manner. Who wakes up and says that prayer? Is that on your prayer list? No, I don't think so. You see, if we think that as we judge others, it would only bring the same judgment towards someone else. So in other words, if I'm judging you critically and in my heart, I'm looking for faults, I'm one of them critical, kind of like you're not doing it my way, and I'm thinking you're looking back at me and saying the same thing, I'm like, who cares? I don't care what you think. It's a whole different story when you're looking at somebody and you're saying that and God's going, really? That's how you want me to treat you? That's a whole other story. It should be. I know it is for me. So self-righteous people establish their own rules, their own regulation, their own commandment. They're not going to be judged by that. They're going to be judged by the righteousness of Christ, the beauty and glory and the perfection of a holy God. That, That should change our mind about judging people. Now, in order to really, I want to lock this in, I'm going to tell you a story, and I hope you ate. A Greek historian by the name of Herodotus, who lived in the 5th century, tells a story, true story from what I understand, historical account. He said there was a judge who was a corrupt judge. His name was Sismenes, S-I-S-A-M-N-E-S, we'll call him Sis, who sat on a courtroom bench under Cambius, he's the king of Persia. He was one of many royal judges in his kingdom. He was a dirty judge. He was a one who took a bribe and took some money and rendered an unjust, unright judgment for the money. It's called a bribe, if you don't know. As a result, when the king found out, he took the man and skinned him. Took the skin, obviously after he died, took the skin and laid strips on the bench in which the judge sat. And then appointed his son, of the dead-skinned guy, to sit on the bench as a reminder. It's your father's skin you're sitting on. The, the judge that would took a bribe. I think the chair would be a great reminder, what do you think? To be careful and judge justly. Like, I'm sitting on my dad. Like, you know, like, that would be something you'd be like, oh, I need to be really, really careful. Uh, I'm, I'm going to share with you, because I, I know some of you are thinking, man, I, I do this. I hope some of you are thinking, because I think we all do it to some degree. I'll give you an example. I might have shared this one or two, but let me tell you how I judge people falsely. I, I would tell you more, but we'd have to stay here for like six months. But let me just tell you one story. Because it happened recently, not too long ago. The story was a long time ago, but God's over the head recently. Anyway, 
I was working in a facility. Many of you know I worked in a, in a correction facility. And there was a pastor, a, a preacher, who loved to walk with a cane. I don't know if he had a bad knee or a bad, bad hip. I don't know. But he walked with a cane. Everywhere he went. Just walking so with a cane. But every Sunday morning when he got out to preach, he didn't need a cane anymore. He's preaching his heart out. Then he gets his cane and he starts limping. And I remember, clear as day, gossiping and like, look at that phony. I didn't know him. Fast forward. I need a hip replacement. I'm walking like this. I'm up here preaching like this. I'm bouncing around. There's like nothing wrong with me. And then I go down. I'm like, oh, my. And the Lord said to me, really? Remember that? I'm like, oh. Yeah, I remember gossiping. That guy is phony. And the Lord's like, you can't. Don't do not judge. Do not quickly come to your conclusions like you know it all. And it just was like, oh, my word. Here I am sitting on God's throne and saying, He's a, look at him. And I really was wrong. I was totally wrong. And family, let's be honest. How many of us have self-proclaimed moral standard and judge people that don't live up to our standard? I'm not talking about Scripture. We're just talking about a critical spirit, not doing what we think they ought to do when we ought to do it. How many times have we sat in judgment of God as we were in the throne of God, only to find out later some other facts, and you're like, you know you did this, man. No, it's not just me. You, you judge, and all of a sudden someone says something like, oh, man, I feel terrible. I didn't know that, right? I, I didn't know they went through that. I don't know that was going on. It's really quick to do, and then the Lord brings you like, really? You don't, you're not omniscient. You really don't know. How often we do, have we gossiped about people looking down on them? So we need to be fair. We need to be careful, I mean, and face, we could face consequences. Now, when I talk about judges, I just want to make this quick and we'll go to the next uh, point. But when I talk about God will judge us as we judge others, I want to be really clear. Presently, the judgment comes down and presently we suffer the consequences Number one, because it destroys our ability to effectively share the gospel. People see your self-righteousness a million miles away, okay? It was Kent Hughes, a great preacher. He said, I think, he said, there is more, there is nothing more ungodly than a critical spirit and nothing more unchristlike than the false righteousness that is always looking for something wrong in someone else. We blow our testimony now. But it also has future aspects of judgment. Now, I'm not saying we're going to be judged for our sin. Jesus Christ, his perfect sacrifice on the cross, died for our sins, past, present, and future. If you trust in him, rely upon his salvation, you will receive eternal life and have eternal life even now, the Bible says. But the judgment that I'm talking about is in 2 Corinthians 5, the Bema seat, where we stand before Christ, every believer will. And give accounts of the things that are in our lives. Not the sin, but the opportunities, the, the gifts and the abilities and the responsibilities that God has given us to do. There'll be rewards and there'll be losses. You can read it for yourself, Second Corinthians 5. It's called the Bema Seat, because that's what it means in Greek. So there'll be a loss of reward when we're overly critical, constantly criticizing other people. Of course we'll be saved. But who wants to stand before Jesus and watch all the things Wash away. So there are consequences. I read a story this week about a boy who went into, the, uh, into a cave. Little boy. And he yelled into the cave, hello. And the cave echoed back, hello. He said, wow, it's cool, another boy in there. And then he yelled on, who are you? And it came back, who are you? And he said, answer me. And it came back, answer me. Boy got mad. 
I'm going to get you, would the echo say. I'm going to get you. The boy got angry and said, I hate you. I hate you. Man, the little boy ran home and told his mom about the boy that was in the cave. The mother knew what was going on. Said, he's very mean. The mother said, I'll tell you what, why don't you go back, son? Why don't you go back and say something nice to the boy? So he ran back and he says, I want to be your friend. Then what do you hear back? I want to be your friend. I like you. I like you. You know, life has a way of echoing back the kind of treatment to us that we do to others, doesn't it? Reap what you sow. So beware of your self-righteous judgment because the rubber band does come right back to you. Number three, the commentary. Look at verse three and four. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? Do not notice the log that is in your own eye when there is a log in your own eye. First, what does he say? Take out the log that's in your own eye. Obviously, Jesus is talking hyperbole. I think it's even sarcastically. I mean, he's saying, you got a little splint, a little sawdust, you see that in your brother's eye, like, oh, I see that little thing. And you got this two by four sticking out of your head. Let me get, let me get the dust. You can't even get near a person with a beam sticking out of your head. A judgmental criticism and critical spirit boils down to the inability of the self-righteous person to see their own sin. That's what Jesus is getting at. You see the speck, but you don't even see this log sticking out of your head. And at that place, you can't really do anything. Why? He says it. Because you're blind. You're blind to your own sin. That's the, that's the, the epitome of, of self-righteousness. Right? I, I mean, you can't see. And people are so quick. Oh, I'll help you. Let me help you. Let me, let me take care of that for you. Because they want to be in your life, but they're going to hit you with a two-by-four if you let them in. That's what's going to happen. So, verse 5, Jesus makes it very clear. You hypocrite, phony, actor. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. How do you take the log out of your eye? Simple, just right next to your Bible, you can write down, repent regularly. When we are constantly looking at our own heart, our own sin, our own stuff, on a regular basis, evaluating our own sin, confessing and repenting of sin, removing that log from our head, then we can go and help and speak into the lives of other people. He's not saying, don't do it, never live life together, never work on stuff together. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, deal with your own stuff first. And when you do that, what happens is you, you, you look at sin in a whole different way. Because you, you're, like, you're approaching this in a humble way because like, I just spent you know, the past four days broken over this wicked sin I keep doing. And so I'm coming to you, and now I'm humble. I'm, 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 I'm loving you. I'm caring about you. I'm joining you. I'm pointing it out. We're walking together, but I'm doing it in a whole different way when I'm constantly dealing with my stuff. That's what Jesus is talking about. Paul says in Galatians, if anyone is caught in a transgression, if he's caught in sin, you who are spiritual, confessing and repenting and being humble before God, Walk with that person in a spirit of gentleness. Restore him. It's a medical word for restoring a bone. Restore him. If, if you're spiritual, restore him in gentleness. Big difference. I heard a story this week. <laughs> I was reading all kinds of funny stuff this week. This is, this is good. There's a guy, he, he is a young man. He wants to impress his girlfriend. So he takes her to an art gallery. When he gets there, he parks the car, he forgets his glasses, and because he's nearsighted, he can hardly see, but he doesn't want to go back. He doesn't want to show any kind of 
faults or anything he did. So he wants to impress her and his knowledge of, of great art. So he approaches this, this frame and he's looking at it and he starts criticizing it, you know, and making comments. And everybody around him starts to laugh. And his girlfriend or the girl he wants to impress leans over and says, John, it's a mirror. So let me just give you some advice as, as, as we look at this last point. When we're dealing with sin, we're dealing with our sin or we're looking to, to remove the dust in the brother's eyes, always, always, always deal with your own sin and do it in a loving, kind, merciful spirit. Okay? I'm not saying that we should not discern. Philippians 1 is a great passage. It says, my prayer, Paul says, that your love may increase, that your love may abound with knowledge and all discernments. Love, genuine love is discerned. We, we need to know how to love someone properly. He says to approve what is excellent and pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It's a discerning love. It's a humble love. It's a love conscience of our own sin flowing from the gospel of grace and mercy that we have been given. Think of it this way. Did Jesus see the log in your eye and say, when you remove that log, log I will die for you, forgive you of your sins? No, he did not. Jesus came while we were still sinners and was crucified on our behalf so that we can be forgiven for our sins. So after we have judged ourselves honestly before God and removed those things that blind us, we can help others by lovingly and correctly judge their issues. Let's end with the calculation. I want to get to this. I see it's running a little late. We need to calculate. We need to be careful. He says because there are some dogs and there are pigs out there, right? Some people are in sheep's, are, are in wolves' clothes, he says in chapter 5, verse 19, uh, yeah, 15 or 19. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you, okay? So understand this. He's not talking about the dog that's waiting right now at home for you, trying to get done out of here so we can get home and you can feed. That's not the dog he's talking about. There are dogs that used to work with the animals back in the day. Job talks about it. The dogs that Jesus is talking about here are the ravenous scoundrels that are in the city eating from the garbage dump. They're not domesticated. They're wild animals and, and honestly terrorizing the city, wild dogs. They're considered unclean. And Jesus says, don't give them which is holy, that which is sacred. In other words, when you go to the temple and you are presenting your offering and the priest gives you your offering piece and he takes an offering piece, that's how offerings work, don't go home and feed your dog with it. Don't give what is holy, sacred, at the temple, sacrificed before God to the scoundrel dogs in the city. That's what he's saying. Don't give your pearls to pigs. Okay? Pearls, gem, valuable don't give it to a pig. Pigs were unclean animals too. What's a pig going to do with a pearl? He's going to think maybe it's a piece of corn, but I don't know if they eat corn. I, I assume they do, but he's going to spit it out. They're going to they're gonna trample on it. They don't know the value of, of, of a pearl. So don't give what's, what's sacred to dogs. Don't give what is valuable to pigs. That's what he's saying. Jesus will go in Matthew 13 to say the kingdom of God is like a great pearl of great price. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. There are times when we are and we need to calculate and be smart and discerning who we demonstrate and declare the gospel to. Sometimes it's harmful. Sometimes they will turn and they will 
look to attack you when you are showing them and loving them in the gospel. There's a time when you have to say, you know what? This is getting ugly. This is getting bad. I'm going to remove myself from this. Now, I've been in that incident before. I was talking to a guy that was incarcerated. I began to share the gospel. And as I began, he was getting more and more and more angry, visually so. And I thought, this is really bad. So I I thought there was going to be a problem, maybe even get attacked. So I walked away. And I found out very soon after that is this young man who was in jail was there. But right before he came to jail, his children and his wife died in a fire. He was so angry with God. I thought, you know, I'm going to love him from a distance and pray. Nobody's outside the hand of God. But if I I start really getting involved here, this could go bad for the both of us. There are times that that may happen in your life. And Jesus says, you know what? It's time to pray. They're never outside the hand of God. They're never outside the change of God. But sometimes if it's dangerous, they're going to turn on you. Sometimes it's okay to say, all right, you're in God's hand. I'm going to lovingly pray that God softens your heart. He doesn't say, don't speak to your enemies. Jesus already said we should love our enemies. He's not saying don't be impatient with someone. You know, say, hey, look, Jesus loves you. He says, get lost. Oh, you're like, oh, you're done. You know, that's not what he's saying. We already know that from the scriptures, okay? What he's saying is there's times in ministry and living on mission, demonstrating and declaring the gospel will actually bring us harm and dishonor of God. And there are a few situations we walk away and say, I'm going to leave it to prayer. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be willing. I'm going to wait and see what God's going to do. So, how? How do we discern, judge ourselves rightly, not condemn others? How do we discern what's what's good and right how do we take the speck out of our eye how do we know what to give to dogs and pearl how do we know all that the gospel look with me if you can because this unlocks it in chapter 5 verse 17 look what it says jesus says do not think beginning of the sermon on the mount do not think i've come to abolish the law the prophets i've come what not to abolish it but to fulfill them right he's saying my my primary relationship to the law is not simply to explain it, although he does, or an example, although he does. He says, the main reason I've come is to fulfill it. I have come to be the law. I have come to fulfill the law. And Jesus goes on to say, in the next passage there, in verse 20, that unless you, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So I want you to see this. It's very important. The Pharisees, We're trusting in their own righteousness. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law because you never will. I have come to fulfill the law perfectly because you are a sinner. Jesus says that the righteousness that we must exceed, that of the Pharisees, is the righteousness that comes from without us, not within us. It's something that must be given to us and not something we can earn on our own. That's what the Pharisees were trying to do. So he says, I've come to fulfill the law. You could never do it. And you need a righteousness that is, is greater than the Pharisees, a right standing that none of you can do, but only I can. Okay, you following that so far? No one is made right with God. Justified, right, verdict, unguilty, not guilty by their own. It must come from outside. It must come from someone else. Now, last verse. I want to wrap this up so you can see this. Romans chapter 3. But now, the righteousness of God, the right standing with God, the right performance before God, the law that was fulfilled, and now the right standing with him 
has been manifested apart from doing the law, because you never do it, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, here it is. The righteousness of God, the performance and the right standing of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We're all sinners, and we are justified, made right, by his grace as a what? Family? Gift. Through the redemption of Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice by his blood to receive by faith. Do you see it? Do you see it? When you grasp that your righteous record, performance, and standing with God is not yours, it's not your performance, it's not your standing, it's not your status, it is the work of Jesus Christ alone, through grace, by faith alone, it's been credited to you, with that you can discern. It's not mine. It's been given to me by grace. With that, you'll be able to see which you should go, what not to go. There's a loving attitude of of grace and mercy, a, a relationship with Christ that's based on his goodness and kindness and mercy to us. How could we judge that way then? How could we judge that way? Our judgment that we deserve was on Jesus, our substitute, who died in our place. How can we have an overcritical spirit? When we do, we're not pressing in the gospel into our life. We're not recognizing that we are completely undone before God. It is Christ's righteousness, his perfect obedience to the law, his work of Christ on the cross, excuse me, on the cross, and his imputed righteousness to us, granted to us, accounted to us, not ourselves. That, my family, will keep you from being critical. Amen? Father, thank you. A righteousness we could never do. A performance of perfection we can never do. But Lord, thank you for sending your son who lived a perfect life, who died an atoning death so that his righteousness has been granted and accounted to us. May we never lose sight and think we have it all together and that we ourselves are righteous. Father, I ask that you, by the power of your Spirit, would remind us daily of our self-righteousness and remind us daily of our over-critical attitude. But Lord, we pray that you help us to get the log out of our eyes so that we can live life together, challenging one another, to live for your glory and our joy. So help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.